All right, turn with me again in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. We have been camped out quite a while on this chapter, um, but there's some very important things that the Lord is teaching us here. We are in Revelation chapter 11 and finishing up um, a series of pictures that we find in the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the seventh trumpet which is the last part of Revelation chapter 11. But last week, we looked at the symbolism of the three cities, Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem, and how it encompasses the earth dweller, that is people, and all that they take refuge in. We'll we'll do a, a quick recap in just a second, but let's ask the Lord to lead us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us here. Thank you for, Lord, your sustaining grace this week helping us and guiding and directing our steps. Lord, I pray this morning that you would give us insight into your word. You you would open our eyes, our understanding, Lord, and give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who do not know you, have never been acquainted with you, have not been born again of the Spirit of God, that you would do what only is possible through the work the Holy Spirit, she would give life, eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, as we look at this subject of resurrection that we studied in Bible study this morning, Father, I pray she will drive your truth home to us and encourage us with it this morning and challenge us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So last week we looked at um, verses 8 through 10, and this is an overall picture, um, a reminder that God is using his church for a very specific purpose in the world, and this comes with some challenges. And last week, we looked at the fact that the church would pay a price. They, or we, will pay a toll. And the analogy that that the book of Revelation brings us in Revelation chapter 11 is, is three specific cities that we see symbolically in verses 8 through 10. Those three cities are Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem. And we were reminded as we studied the scripture that um, the earth dweller, that is the one that belongs here, that resides here, that, that makes his or her home in this world, who, who finds refuge here, who lingers here. We looked at the analogy of Lot as God sent angels to rescue him before he destroyed the city and how Lot lingered. And and the necessity for suffering in the Christian life to break our grip on this world. There's much about this world that attracts us, appeals to us, wants us to take up permanent, permanent residence here. And one of the things that God does for us as he sanctifies his church is to break our grip on this world. And how does he do that? Well, 1 Peter 4, verse 1 says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Uh, Peter reminds us that the suffering that the church will undergo in this life for, for being a witness of Christ will cost them, and it's not going to be without pain. And the third thing that it will not be without is scoffing and mocking. Think that the world will love you because you tell them the truth, and we're reminded here it's not the case. We see the dancing in the street in Revelation chapter 11 when the two witnesses, that is the church pictured here, uh, is, is killed by the beast. And there's a party. And we're reminded that 
that used to be us. And this morning, as we look at verses 11 through 14, we pick up where we left off last week, and there's a celebration in Revelation chapter 11. The world is celebrating the seeming demise of the church, and she's been tormented by the church. What does the church do to torment the world? She tells the truth. She tells the truth. And the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Verse 8, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. The picture of ultimate disrespect. You will not allow a body to be taken and buried. And so the world is celebrating the seeming demise of the church, and they party. Scripture says they exchange gifts. Their conscience is silenced, or so they think. But the story is not over. In verse 11, where we pick up this morning, it says this, but after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up. They stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. What does it bring to mind when it talks about, and, it, and again, this is symbolism. The scripture is, is painting a picture for us to understand here. What is, what is pictured here with the three and a half days that these bodies lie dead in the street? Does it ring a bell? Like Jesus. Yes. Amazingly so. Three and a half days, they lay dead in the street. The world thinks their problems are over. The torment has been silenced. And then verse 11 says, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. It's almost a parallel of the, the passage you read in Luke 7 yeah. this morning where the Lord Jesus stops the funeral procession and tells the young man who is dead in the coffin, stand up. And the scripture says, great fear fell on them. God has the final word. We think the, the world mocking the church and partying over its demise is the last word. It's not. God has the final word. And obviously, the three and a half days here is a picture to link the experience of the church with that of the Lord Jesus. The church is united with Christ and therefore victorious over death. That's the picture here. Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He's talking to Mary, who is the brother of Lazarus. She comes to Jesus and says, Lord, Lazarus has been dead three days, but if you could have been here, Maybe his life would have been saved. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We talked about resurrection this morning in Bible study. There's nothing short of a miracle taking place here. Nothing short of it. And what does it do? It validates the message of the messenger. Jesus had power over life and death. And by the way, if Jesus did not have the power of resurrection, you being a Christian this morning would be a waste of time. Right. It'd be useless. It would be an exercise in morality. Right? It's a good thing not to kill people. It's a good thing not to steal from them. We would all agree with that. But it wouldn't get us to heaven, would it? But if the resurrection isn't true, isn't real, if it's just a figment of our imaginations, then there's nothing to be excited about as a Christian. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 12. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
Paul is addressing a false teaching here that had infected the church in Corinth, which is to say the, the, this was the idea of materialism. That is not, not money materialism, but if it's not material, it can't be real. Therefore, the resurrection of the dead is false. It's not science. And Paul says, how can this be? Verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Well, there's a problem with that because he was witnessed to have been dead, buried, and then resurrected. This makes all of the witnesses liars. But worse than that, makes God a liar. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. It's empty. And your faith is vain or empty. You have no reason to base your faith on anything if the resurrection is not real. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is saying this, I'm an apostle of lies. My entire apostleship is based on lies. If the resurrection is not true. In verse 17, and here's the the clincher, if you will. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And here is the line. You are still in your sins. It's easy to say to somebody, your sins are forgiven. I can lie to you and say your sins are forgiven. But Jesus, when he told somebody their sins were forgiven, accompanied that with power. Take up your bed and walk. As he said to the uh, the man in the coffin, get up, and he starts speaking. There is no forgiveness of sins if the resurrection is not real. So what is this picture that we have in Revelation 11? We see um, some very important imagery here, and, and the cool thing about the book of Revelation is it's constantly taking us back to the Old Testament, and it helps us to understand what we're seeing here. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation, or excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. Griffey has a saying that he tells me frequently. He says, Dad, I love your bones. (laughs) I tried to figure out what that meant in little person talk. But really what he means is I love you to the core of who you are. I love your bones. It's all, it is sweet, isn't it? Um, it's like the exact opposite of this pot is filled with death. <laughs> that we studied this morning. In Ezekiel chapter 37, it talks about bones. This is the valley of dry bones. And this is exactly the imagery that John is alluding to in Revelation chapter 11. He takes us right here to Ezekiel 37. Same language here. Verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he laid, or he led me among them. And behold, there was very many on the surface of the valley. They were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? How would you like that? Take a walk through a valley of dead bones. And the scripture makes a point to tell us, not only are are these bodies dead, but what about the bones? They're dry. There's not an ounce a molecule of life to be found in these bones. And God asks Ezekiel a very interesting question. Son of man, can these bones live? Well, that's a yes and no answer. On their own, they don't have a chance. Not a chance. 
Ezekiel answers wisely, though, though he says, oh, Lord, you know. <laughs> then he said to me, that is, God said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Another interesting statement. How do dry bones hear? How do, how do dry bones hear? Well, the answer is they can't. They can't. Dead bodies hear nothing. This is an interesting picture he's painting for us here. Verse 5 of Ezekiel 37, he says, Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. But Lord, I made a decision for you. See what God says here? I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. I will lay sinews sinews upon you and, and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. And notice this, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. Behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Can you imagine seeing this? Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, son of man, these bones are the house of Israel. Lord's teaching Ezekiel in a very vivid picture here. These bones, these dead bodies are the house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place in your, you in your own land, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. So what part did those bones have in their resurrection? They were dry. They didn't bring anything to the table, did they? I was thinking this week about why we don't give an altar, an altar call in our in our church. And in, in doing some, some pondering on that. And in the 1850s, it became popular with um, Finney to give an altar call. And he said that... It was within the context of humanity to be able to respond to God. Luther on, on the exact opposite, really takes the opposite perspective of that. And he says, why does God give a command that humanity is not able to obey? In other words, the command of the gospel is repent and obey the gospel. Are we able to obey that? God gives a command that we cannot obey so that we come to ourselves and realize, I am dry bones, and I need him. And so that's the picture here that we see in Revelation 11. And notice Israel crying out to God, our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. The picture here is that it is hopeless, helpless. There is no resurrection for the dead here in and of themselves and the question that comes to my mind as i look at this is is ezekiel speaking ezekiel 37 in context is dealing with israel's captivity to babylon 
and God's miraculous re rescue from Babylon? Is John misapplying this passage here? Because as we study eschatology, we often confuse Israel and the church. Now, we've labored as we've studied through the book of Revelation to set that straight, but one of the dividing lines in the evangelical church is how we view the church and Israel. And it at on the surface, it would look like John is misapplying Ezekiel 37 to the two witnesses. But remember what we studied in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8. Where were the bodies located? Where was the crime scene? Where was the chalk outline? The great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. But the application of Ezekiel here, the reminder is that the city where the Lord was crucified is a picture of unbelieving Israel, Jerusalem. And John is reminding us in this picture of who Israel is. But the picture here is so dire for the church. The world is dancing in the street over its apparent demise, exchanging gifts. Not only is the church left for dead, but the bones are dry. Hope is lost. And we seem to be a dead branch cut off from the tree. But God but God. So in this picture in Revelation 11, why does God allow the enemy to seemingly win? The question could be asked from our Bible study this morning. Why did God use widows to illustrate his power? Why? Because the widow that had nothing left but a, a pot or a jar of oil had come to the, to the end of herself. Did nothing else to offer. No power. The answer to the question is this, because God alone will be the champion of the church. It will not be you. It will not be me. But God says he will breathe life into the, the church and raise it up. And so what's the picture here? We'll, we'll get into a couple different aspects of this this morning, but I want you to understand something here. This is a picture that God is validating the message of the two witnesses, okay? It's important that we understand that. If the two witnesses had stayed dead in the street, everything that they prophesied about to the world would have been moot, would have been unimportant. But the fact that God raises them up, that changes the picture. Just a little bit. The scripture says in the second part of verse 11, the spirit of the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The word in the Greek is megaphobos. We get the, the word phobia from it. Big time fear came upon those who saw them. The fear here is a panic. It is a flight. You've heard of that, that term, fight or flight? When you are so, have you ever been there? You've been so scared of something that your adrenaline is just surging. I do that every time I publicly speak, by the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> fight or flight. I want you to see, though, that this is not talking about godly fear that leads to repentance. This is a reversal of the celebration that we see in verse 10. And we see another picture of this in Revelation 18, verse 9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. This is Babylon the Great. They will stand afar off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, the mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. It's not a picture here of repentance. It's a picture of fear. It's a picture of, um, as I said, panic. And verse 12 says, when they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they, that is the two witnesses, went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. I mean, there's so, there's so much here that is that correlates with our study. How did Elijah 
depart this earth in a whirlwind. But I want you to see that this perfectly mirrors the account in Revelation 4 1. You remember when we first started studying John's call to the throne room? Turn back there for just a second. Revelation chapter 4. Verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what may, might or what must take place after this. And at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Picture here is it, it very much mirrors the calling that John has to come up which served again to validate and vindicate John's prophetic role. But just like we studied in second Kings and have studied in second Kings, Elijah being taken up by the chariot. And it serves as a visual that these two witnesses and their prophecy are in fact legit. And this is exemplified in the response of the earth dweller who is struck with fear because they recognize the implications here. And almost hear them saying, you mean everything that they said, that I mocked, that I ridiculed, that I rejected, is really true? So the question that comes up, maybe this didn't occur to you, but it did to me. Is this referring to the secret pre-tribulation rapture? Well, a couple of things on that. In this picture, has the church suffered yet? She's already suffered, hasn't she? This is immediately following her suffering. The church has completed its mission to preach to the last of the elect. And I want you to notice this. The elect are present during the tribulation of the last days. It makes a pre-tribulation rapture very, very difficult to justify. We'll talk about why that's important, but I want you to see this. Matthew 24, 21, and 22. For then there will be great tribulation. Dispensationalist, premillennial, pre-tribulation doctrine teaches that the seven years, three and a half years, the first three and a half years of that is just tribulation. But then the second half, well, that's great tribulation. But I want you to see something. No matter how we parse great or regular tribulation, I don't, I don't know how you decipher that because Christians have been martyred since the ascension of the Lord Jesus. How do you tell the Christian who is burned at the stake or is fed to the lions in the Colosseum or is hung on a, on a, a stake to light Nero's gardens at night? How do you tell them they're not going through great tribulation. It's semantics at that point, isn't it? But in Matthew 24, 21, Jesus says, for then there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But wait a minute, who's there? And why are those days cut short? But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The question that we absolutely have to answer and decipher is, who are the elect? Our, our men's Bible study is on that this afternoon. But who are the elect? The elect, by the way, if we study scripture, the elect is the believer. The elect is the child of God. The elect is the church. Believing Israel, if you will. But then look at Matthew 29 or 24, 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. We see the end of time here. Okay. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, will send out his angels with a loud trumpet. And what will they do? They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. 
Where are the elect during the tribulation or the great tribulation? They're here. Why are they here? Well, Jesus told his disciples before he left in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why is the, the elect or why is the church still present during tribulation? The answer is we're here to witness. And we witness in that suffering. Wanted to share something with you that I read, and and it was spot on. R.C. Sproul in his book, The Work of Christ, he comments on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is, there's really two passages, by the way, in Scripture that that those who hold to a pre-tribulation rapture go to. First is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18, and the other is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But the context of both of those passages is the last day. The day in which the Lord returns and calls us to meet him in the air at the last judgment. But but R.C. Sproul says this, false teaching about what is popularly called the rapture. The rapture is the miraculous transportation of all living Christians to heaven at the return of Jesus. There is a lot of misinformation about this event, but the passage gives us some definite truths about it. Paul made it clear that Jesus's return will not be secret, but will be visible. Now, what is the one thing you notice in this text when the two witnesses are called up? They all saw it. There's no secret here, okay? So we can do away with that. But Sproul continues. It will be a bodily return, and when, and it will be a triumphant return, for he will not come in lowliness and meekness as he did at his first advent, but in power and in glory. The angels told the disciples, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Acts 1.11, just as he left visibly on the Shekinah cloud, so he will come again visibly on this cloud of glory. There is a view, one that is widespread, very widespread in the church today that holds that Jesus will come back to rapture the church out of the world. But that great tribulation will then occur after which Jesus will return again. Sproul says, I think this view is a result of a serious misunderstanding of what the apostle described here in 1 Thessalonians. I once spoke with one of the leading representatives of this school of thought, a man who teaches the pre-tribulation rapture, and I said to him, I don't know a single verse anywhere in the Bible that teaches a pre-tribulation rapture. Can you tell me where to find it? He said, I'll never forget what he said to me. The response was, no, I can't, but that's what I was taught from the time I was a little child. I told him, let's get our theology from the Bible rather than from Sunday school lessons we heard years and years ago. Let us look at the events Paul described here first. Noted, the Lord himself will descend and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Here we see the purpose. Listen to this. We see the purpose of the dead rising and our being caught up into the sky is not to go away, but to meet Jesus as he is returning. He will not be taking us out of the world to stay. He will be lifting us up to participate with him in his triumphal return. When the Roman legions were dispatched to go into a foreign country on a military campaign, their standards bore the letters SPQR, an abbreviation for Senatus Populus Q Romanus, which means the Senate and the people of Rome. It was understood in Rome that the conquests of the military were not simply for the politicians who governed, but for all the citizens of the city. The army might be gone for a campaign of two or three years. Finally, the soldiers would return leading captives in chains. If you guys have ever seen the movie The Gladiator, you know exactly what, what this scene is picturing. They would camp outside the city and send in a messenger to 
alert the Senate and the people that the legions had returned. When the news arrived, the people began to prepare to receive the conquering heroes. When everything was ready, a trumpet was sounded. With that, the city, the citizens of the city went out to where the army was camped and joined the soldiers in marching into the city. The idea was that they had participated in the triumph of the conquering army. This is exactly the language that Paul used here. He was saying that when Jesus comes back in conquering power, believers, both dead and alive, will be caught up in the air to meet him, not to stay up there, but to join his return in triumph, to participate in his exaltation. It seems that Paul's goal here was to comfort the Thessalonians who were saddened that their dead loved ones were apparently going to miss the triumphal return of Christ. The great conclusion to the ministry of Jesus at the end of time. But Paul assured them that the dead in Christ will not miss his return at all. In fact, they will be there first. The dead will rise first and those who are still alive and our Christ will be caught up together with this whole assembly to come to the earth again and triumph. One of the things that was impressed upon me as I was thinking about this was John chapter 17. Very interesting passage. And the last recorded conversation that we have between Jesus as he's praying to the Father in the garden, he's about to go to the cross. And what does Jesus pray? For his people. Aside from the context of both 1 Thessalonians 4 and, and 1 Corinthians 15 being that of the final resurrection of the dead, the last judgment, my question for my premillennial dispensational brethren is this What did the Lord Jesus pray for the church prior to his death, burial, and resurrection in the garden? If this doctrine is so central, and should be central to our understanding. Why did he say what he says? And I'm about to read to you. John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The word um, in the Greek, to take out, aris in the Greek, it means to raise up, to take up, to lift Jesus is praying to the Father and says, I'm not asking you to take them out. What is his request for us? That we're kept. But that you keep the word tereses, watch over, guard them from the evil. The word in the Greek for evil, it's not evil one, it's paneros. It it means um, to keep them in pain, keep them in the midst of it. Why didn't Jesus just ask the Father to take us out? Why is it important that the church follow in the steps of Christ? Why is this important at all? Why isn't this just an eschatological difference among Christians? Well, the answer is this. Truth is important. It's vitally important. And as I study this, I find no place in Scripture where it tells us that we escape suffering. It's not there. And I think it gives the enemy a huge advantage on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to have us misinformed. We studied a couple weeks ago in over 12 distinct texts. God has a purpose for suffering in the life of the Christian. If God's intent was to rapture you out of suffering, then something must be amiss with you. If if the purpose of my existence in this life is to be happy and healthy and wealthy, and I'm experiencing pain and tribulation, something's wrong with me. Right? It leaves the church ill-equipped and ill-informed. And and also deceives us about God's intent for the church. He has not called us to comfort and ease in this life. It's not true. And it's popular. It's the message of a megachurch, isn't it? Live your best life now. Our best life is the life that's, that's yet to come. It's not now. 
but something must be wrong with you. If you are experiencing suffering in this life, it's sin. You did something, right? And the reality of it is, is God has called us to suffer so that we will be a witness and a faithful testimony to his message. Verse 13. In that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. There is a picture here of retributive justice. You notice the statement of 7,000. Where does that take your mind? Remember when Elijah had confronted the prophets of Baal? They had the, the, the great showdown at the OK Corral, and those pro- the 400 prophets of Baal are done away with. They're executed for their idolatry, and we find Elijah immediately goes from there on what you would think would be the spiritual high, and he goes into the wilderness. He's like, I'm all alone. There's nobody else, and God says, no, Elijah, I have reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal, a picture of his remnant. And it's interesting that the script is flipped here because the punishment is on 7,000 from the symbolic cities. What is the picture here? Justice. The beast has attacked the remnant, and God is going to vindicate the remnant. This is another answer to the how long question that we talked about in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They had cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what do we do with this? I I was thinking about the widow who grabbed Elisha and wouldn't let go and said, no, I'm taking you all the way to the house because my my son is dead. And I was thinking, Mark, when you talked about that of, of Luke chapter 18, In Luke 18, Jesus teaches a parable, and he says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Is the Lord an unjust judge? No. No. He said if if an unjust judge will give the widow justice because she continually implores and nags him, How much will your heavenly father give justice? But listen to what he says. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Say, what is the church to do when the church is abused and mistreated and left by the world for dead? Well, the answer is praying. The Lord has not left us with nothing. The whole point of that parable, Jesus says, here is a delay in justice. There's frustration. The church may feel like she's given up on, like she's a byword. She's been forgotten about. And Jesus says, he he gives this parable to his disciples so that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Why did the widow hang on to Elisha's ankle and say, I'm not letting you go? Because she knew he promised that she was going to have a son. And he, he did not promise her that son just so 
that that son would die and he'd, and she'd be left with no heir. The point is this, is with the eye of faith, we see the end. The scripture tells us the truth here for a very important reason. God promises that he will raise his people up. It may look bleak. It may look dark. Our bones may be dry. But Jesus says, always pray and don't lose heart. Why? Because our faith is in the one who raises the dead from the grave. This is also a reminder of the temporal judgment that that is inflicted on humanity in the opening of the first five seals and then the sixth. If you look in Revelation 6, I'm almost done. Revelation 6, 12 through 17, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. Same term here used. Remember, Revelation is teaching the same truths from different angles. Almost like a kaleidoscope. You twist the kaleidoscope and it gives you just a different hue, a different image, but it's the same thing. And here is in Revelation 6, the great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. Pictures right with Revel, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 24, the end of time. So this is dealing with the very final return of Christ. Verse 15 of of Revelation 6, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on a throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath is come and who can stand? We talked about fear fell upon them as they were caught up to heaven. What was that repentance on their part? No, but it is a falling away of atheism. When man sees God in his wrath, doesn't mean he's repenting and obeying the gospel, but guess what goes away? There is no God. That ceases to exist. All atheism fades away. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That does not mean that every man, woman, child everywhere repents and believes the gospel, but they acknowledge the Son. Because he is Lord. And that's the picture here. Great fear comes upon them. They recognize him for who he is. The, the witness and the testimony of the church is valid, validated because God validates it. And then verse 14, as we wrap up, the scripture says, The second woe has passed. That is the sixth trumpet. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That is the seventh trumpet. What is woe again? Don't use that in our current vernacular very often, but woe, 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 we find in Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Woe, triple, to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. It is a pronouncement of great grief. When the world realizes that it is under the judgment of a holy God, it will grieve. The church will be vindicated. Remember that the emphasis of the seven seals deals with the sealing and the preservation of the saints. The emphasis of the seven trumpets is on what? It's the warning to the world. It's a warning to those who are yet unconverted and unrepentant of the impending danger of Christ's return. And these judgments focus specifically on the earth dweller. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That is those who love this world. Jesus said, or John in 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever.
Lord willing, next week we will look at the last woe of the third of the three woes and the uh, the seven trumpet verses fifteen through nineteen. But what do we apply? What what is our application for this as we close this morning? Well, first of all, God has the final word over the enemies of the church. Amen. He will allow hopelessness. Listen, he will allow hopelessness and desperation in order to glorify his saving power because he alone will be the champion of the church. And it will look bleak and it will look hopeless. You say, well, Danny, what are those circumstances? I don't know. I don't know. What does that mean for the church in America? I don't know. All I know is what the scripture tells us, that the church, from the perspective of the world, is going to be dead in the streets. It does not mean that every Christian everywhere will be dead. That's not what this is saying. But in the eyes of the world, the church will have lost its validity. Its message will be silenced. And and the only thing I can tell you from from what I study is that the church will, will continue to be has always been since the ascension of the Lord Jesus, but will continue to be under great tribulation and persecution and suffering. And the church will celebrate, or the world will celebrate that. But God has the final word over the enemies of the church. Jesse, can you go to the last slide? Secondly, Jesus, I want you to see this. This is incredibly important. Jesus did not pray for our removal from this world. Did Jesus have his eschatology wrong? Did no one tell him about John Nelson Darby? No. Jesus prays for what is best for his people. And what is best for his people is that we know him in the fellowship of his sufferings as we walk in his steps. And he has prayed for us. Do you think his prayer will go unanswered? No. Because Jesus prays in the perfect will of the Father. He did not pray, however, for our removal from our from the world, rather our protection in it. And then we looked at the third thing, how long? How long do we have to wait before the Lord returns? Say it's not so bad here in America. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Christians across this this planet are being martyred, are suffering persecution. There are some 70,000 Christians in North Korea who do not have anything close to the freedoms that we enjoy to be able to publicly assemble and both preach and hear the word preached. They're in prison. Can you imagine what that existence is like? What do they have to do? Or what can they do in bonds and in prison? I guarantee you I know what they're doing. They're praying. You know what they're asking? How long, Lord? How long? The day of justice is coming soon for the earth dweller. And then lastly, the trumpets are a warning to those who would hear. We looked at the message to the seven churches. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. God is delaying his justice to give time for sinners to repent. And as we looked at the three cities earlier in this chapter, there's a picture of refuge. Where is my refuge? The question for us this morning is, is the righteousness of Christ our refuge? Is he who we are resting in? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, this is not a, a pleasant subject as we contemplate the suffering of the saints, as we think about, um, Father, tribulation, and things that are difficult and uncomfortable. We have been spoiled for so long, Lord. But we also recognize that, Father, it's through your divine hand and bringing difficulty persecution, trials, tribulation into the life of the church to do in her what is needed. 
That is to purify her, to sanctify her, to prepare her for your return, to break, Lord, our love for this world. We're comfortable here, too comfortable. And we ask that you would, Father, in your grace and your mercy, give us eyes to see what is really coming and to understand that this world and all of the things in it that we chase, the shadows that we chase, Lord, are just fleeting and someday will burn as you judge this place. In the meantime, what should we be? How should we live? What should we do? We ask that you would help us this morning. Prepare our hearts, Lord, as we come to your table. We ask this here. Uh, Mark and Jesse, will you come help me? So every other week, we come to the Lord's table, and the Scripture tells us that we are to observe the Lord's Supper on a regular basis as a reminder. Um, we as human beings and sinful ones are prone to forget. And so it's good for us to come to the Lord's table and be reminded of His grace, of His mercy. Um, and I just want to remind you of the passage that we look at, First Corinthians chapter 11. There is um, a powerful reminder here. In verse 27, it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in, un in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of Christ. You say, what do I have to do to be worthy to sit at the Lord's table and partake of the Lord's supper? Well, the answer is you are not worthy. Only through the righteousness of Christ are we made worthy to partake. So when it talks about partaking of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, it's talking about those who take this lightly, who have no understanding what it's about. And so the scripture warns us here that the table for, for us is open to any and every Christian. You're welcome. But we're to do it with examination. Verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. You say, well, what kind of judgment? Well, Paul says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak or ill and some have died. You say, that's pretty serious. Does God take the Lord's table seriously? Yes. That's why this should never become flippant for us. It should never become old hat. It's life and death. So when we come to the table, listen, we, we come to the table in celebration of what Christ has done for us. But if, if we're hiding under the radar and we have unconfessed and unrepented of sin, and we're not taking this seriously, don't, don't put yourself at risk. Because God takes this seriously. Verse 31 says, but if we would judge ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, tarry for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. This is an example of taking the Lord's Supper lightly. Oh, it's an opportunity for a snack. No, it's not. It's not what this is about. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. So let's take a minute to examine ourselves um, and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts as we come before his table this morning, and then we'll, we'll commence. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you give us this visual reminder that you have laid your life down for your people, for your church. You have given your body, Father, and shed your blood that our sins might be forgiven. I pray, Lord, as we come to your table this morning, that you would create in us clean hearts, restore our joy. Father, that you would remind us of your grace and your goodness, that you would remind us you have not left us, 
we are not dry bones, but that you have given us life. And Father, one day we will be resurrected just as the Son has been. We rejoice in that and we look forward to that day. In the meantime, we do this in remembrance of you until you return. We ask for your blessing on our time this morning in your name. Amen.